We're in Revelation chapter 21. We're only going to be looking at three verses, and really only one of those three are we really going to delve into. So, Revelation chapter 21, verses 6 through 8. We looked at the, the first five verses, the new heaven and the new earth, last week, created by God, and he will do this creation at the end of the millennium. And this new heaven and this new earth will be composed of new dimensions in which we will worship and fellowship with God in ways without limitations. The limitations that constrain us today will be removed, and uh, that will be a blessing. You may know of someone uh, that has a photographic memory. I'm not one of those. I'm of the repeat, and would you say that again, please, memory base. But the other day, I'm visiting with a lady, and she began to tell me the names of my grandchildren as I struggled to try to remember the names of my grandkids. And this lady had only met my grandchildren once or twice, and she's telling me their names. I'm envious of that kind of memory. That is totally lacking <laughs> on my part. But in heaven, in our new bodies, in, a, in this new earth, we will have abilities to comprehend and fellowship with God in a more complete way. In heaven, this dullness of mind will be a thing of the past. To which I pray, come quickly, Lord Jesus. <laughs> so bear with me as we read verses 6 through 8 of chapter 21, because I need to read them, all right? Revelation 21, 6 through 8. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, and I will give to, of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. John, as he receives this revelation, his, this description of heaven and earth, he falls into telling us what it isn't. And sometimes we need to know what something isn't where we can appreciate what it is. And so taking a page out of John's description where it says, you know, it is done, we're going to try to look what it means to be undone before looking at the done part. The word undone only occurs in scriptures five times. We have Jesus declaring on the cross, it is finished, which is a type of way of saying it is done. 
And when Jesus said it is finished on the cross, he was speaking of our salvation. And our salvation is a done deal. God's work of salvation is completed. It is finished, over with, not to be added to or taken away from. I got a call the other day from uh, a lady who wanted me to call her back. She wanted me to tell her a little bit about our church. And I said, well, they're an unfriendly group, but come on out. They might, they might be nice to you. No. And she wanted to know where we stood on salvation. And I thought, how strange that this woman would want to know. I said, well, we believe in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, you know, and his sacrificial death. She said, you would be surprised how many churches do not believe that. And yes, I would. Why call yourself a church if you don't believe that? Or especially a Christian church. But God's work, Jesus' work on the cross, it's done. And it's done through for throughout eternity. One of the primary works of Jesus was to secure our salvation. And he used the word finished. It is finished. Now we have Jesus saying here in in our text, it is done. What done does he mean here? Well, the history of man, it is done. It is over with. But let me talk a little bit about undones. So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6, and we'll look, look at verses 1 through 5. I'll give you a second to turn there. Isaiah 6, verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above, above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post and the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, this is Isaiah, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. King Uzziah, he's died. King Uzziah was a good king, a righteous king. Many believe that Isaiah was a relative, a close relative, perhaps a nephew of King Uzziah. Isaiah is troubled, and God comforts Isaiah with a vision of himself. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and Isaiah sees the glory and majesty of God in his vision. Isaiah also sees seraphim, plural, meaning more than one seraphim, an angelic being that has six wings. Four of these wings are used in reverence 
of covering his body before the almighty and holy God. He covers his body with four of those wings. The other two wings are used for service to fly with. And these seraphim demonstrate to all of heaven the holiness of God. And John in Revelations, singular, not Revelations, John in Revelation, he is, uh, he's not the first one to ever have a vision of Jesus on the throne. John, when he sees his vision and he speaks with the angels, he's overwhelmed and he falls down and he tries to worship these angels. And John is told in the book of Revelation several times, see that you don't do that. John quit worshiping angels. Well, Isaiah goes through something similar to that. He sees the glory of God and he says, woe is me. For I am undone. Now the definition of undone is not simply a task left incomplete or unfinished. Undone speaks of depravity. Being out of your element. Uh, Isaiah also declares, woe is me. And we'll get into that here in a second. Woe is me, I am undone done. Any vision of God, any supernatural revelation of God brings a person to a state of what we call worthlessness. Worthlessness of myself in the presence of God. Isaiah sees God. He has this vision of God and his response is, woe is me, I'm undone. Or I'm doomed. Years ago, out in California, I was out on the country road, and I'm in prayer, and I'm meditating and about the things of God and thinking about my place, my position in his kingdom, and I'm feeling sort of pious when I felt this need to ask the Lord to reveal my spiritual state, reveal myself to myself. Let me see myself as you see me, Lord. Well, that's a dangerous prayer. I had to pull off to the side of the road as God began to show me my depravity. He began to show me his holiness coupled with my own poverty. And it was, it was, woe is me. And that were, you know, that was kind of my thought before the Lord. Woe is me. I am undone. I'm undone because of the holiness of God. And I sat there alongside of the road for who knows how long, and I'm trying to recover. I'm trying to deal with my worthlessness of self before the Lord. There is a common thread that is woven throughout the Old Testament. And the reason Isaiah says, woe is me, is that thread that is woven is, if you see God, you must die. God himself declared to Moses, 
No man has ever seen me and lived, Moses, and you want to see me? God, in Isaiah's vision, only allows Isaiah to see enough of himself that it totally humbles Isaiah. John, in our text, 21.6, Jesus declares to John, after the new heaven and new earth are created, after the new Jerusalem has been revealed, after Jesus has proclaimed, behold, I make all things new, Jesus declares to John, it is done. How straightforward can the Lord be? So when Jesus says this to John, it is done, we are only left with maybe a chapter or so in the book of Revelation, and it's where God just shows John everything that will culminate the history of of man. He's showing John the final details of how he will usher in his heavenly kingdom. We, the bride of Christ, will experience all things new. Jesus, he will also describe himself to John here in this verse, and he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Now, we know that, very common, uh, memorized scripture. But the beginning and the end are both capitalized, both words. This means this is a title and a description of Jesus. He is the beginning and the end. In the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, it starts with, in the beginning, God. Now, this isn't the beginning of God, but it's the beginning of God's dealings with man. Alpha happens to be the first letter of the Greek alphabet, and omega happens to be the last letter of the alphabet. Our Lord Jesus, there at the beginning, creating man and the worlds, now this same Jesus who was there at the beginning, he's here at the end, at the last book, the last of the last book in the Bible, and he says, it is done. It's over. Nothing more to accomplish concerning man's final destination with himself. There's a couple things that hinder us in our walk with the Lord, and it's time and temptation. The temptation to sin, which many times leads to sin, separates us from God. That will be done with. That is over for the saints, and only eternity awaits us. Can you imagine what it would be like to live in a world and in an environment where you are no longer tempted to sin? I'm ready for that. 
As a child, when I accepted Jesus as my Savior, I had what they say is one enlightening moment. And I was concerned as a little guy about my future commitment to the Lord Jesus. So I wanted to cover all bases. As a little guy, I prayed, Jesus, keep me even if I should want to wander away from you. Lord, watch over me and keep me. Keep me to yourself. God has been faithful to that little boy's prayer. He has been faithful to me. But as a child, I had that moment of clarity. I'm waiting for the second one. Maybe it'll come, but I had one. I had a moment of clarity. Uh, it was a moment where I realized, even as a little guy, that my emotions, my faithfulness, to say the least, I was fickle. I was not as sold out to God as I knew I should be. And I realized that, so I tried to pray for my future. But Jesus declares here that he is the beginning of our faith. He is also the end of our faith. Our Lord is more than able to deal with all of our moments of lack of faith. Aren't you glad for that? God can handle my lack of faith, my moments of doubt. They don't shake him up. Even when my commitment to him is at best casual, God can deal with that. Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, he is faithful to keep us until the end. which happens to be until we enter our eternal, everlasting state of being with our Lord. Now consider this, Jesus the Omega. Him being the Omega marks the beginning of our everlasting. In Ecclesiastes 3.11, it says, God who has made everything beautiful, has put eternity in our hearts. We, not of our own goodness or foresight or anything else, we look forward to the time that we will be with God on an eternal basis because He has put it in our hearts. And my concerns as a little guy, as a child, about drifting away from Christ, wanting Jesus to secure my future, well, God deals with that in each of us. And he deals with it by giving us a thirst after him. To thirst is a primal need of our lives. Thirst is much stronger than hunger. It's much stronger than any need for sleep or any other physical need. And Jesus 
he encountered a woman at a well in Samaria who thirsted. But she was ignorant of her own thirst. So I want to take you through that little story. I think it has a lot to say to us today. So turn to John chapter 4, and we'll look at verses 4 through 26. It's quite a little reading, but I want us to read the whole passage because I think it's so pertinent. John 4, 4 through 26. John 4. But he, speaking of Jesus, needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is one of the great illustrations and stories 
I think, in the ministry of Jesus. It, this is right up there for me as one of the best ones. Um, verse 4, it begins with Jesus needing to go through Samaria. Why does he need to go through Samaria? Because there's one woman there that is thirsty. Jesus is completely led of the Spirit, and he says he needs to obey the Spirit. He needs to go through Samaria. He needs to do the will of God. Now contrast that with how we sometimes look upon God's will as optional. Oh, that we would look upon the will of God as a need in our life. But Jesus, he asks this woman for a drink. And she's a Samaritan and she points that out. <laughs> and she says, why would you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? She's trying to drag this conversation down. She's wanting to reduce it down and maybe put it into a debate. You know, have a little fun with this Jew that's sitting at the well. But Jesus immediately takes a conversation beyond a drink of water, beyond Jacob's well, and he talks about living water. Jesus takes it, what you would say, from the physical to the spiritual. And he says in verse 10, if you knew the gift of God. Let's examine that just for a moment. What is the gift of God for this sinful woman? What is the gift of God for sinful mankind? Jesus answers his own question. If you knew who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would respond differently. Jesus will now explain God's solution to anyone who thirsts for spiritual life. Anyone. Jesus tells her, you should have asked for living water, and I, Jesus, would have given it to you. The woman, she has a question, and she's going to ask those questions. Again, she tries to lighten the conversation. She tries to... Uh, bring it down. It's getting a little too heavy for her. And she asks, well, where is your bucket to draw with? You have nothing to draw with, sir, and how can you get this living water? And then she asks one more question. Are you greater than Jacob, our patriarch, patriarch for the Jew, patriarch for the Samaritan, grandson of Abraham, the father of us all, Jews and Samaritans, are you greater than Jacob? And again, she's trying to drag down the conversation and reduce it to a debate or argument. And you and I face the same thing when we try to witness to people. They try to bring that conversation down. They try to make it into a debate or an argument because they want to avoid the truth of what you're saying to them like this woman is also trying to avoid the truth. 
But Jesus stays on course. Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. The Samaritan woman, she wants this water. Sir, give me this water that may not thirst. And just for a moment, we think, ah, she got it. (laughs) But she didn't. She, She continues and she says, because I don't want to come here to draw water. Oh, well. Come on, lady. (laughs) And Jesus, of course, is speaking of spiritual thirst. The woman continues to try to reduce conversation to the physical. And Jesus will enter that physical realm with her for a moment. And he says to her, go call your husband. This changes the whole course of their conversation Because Jesus now puts his finger on her sin. The woman replies, I have no husband. And Jesus says, well said, for you have had five husbands. And the one you live with now is not your husband. The woman has tried to be sort of catty, kind of uh, a little smart-alecky until she is busted with her sin. And when Jesus busts her with her sin, her response is, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And then Jesus gives all of us who read this passage, he gives us a glimpse of the heart of God the Father. And he says in verse 23, The hour is coming and now is, When true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He's got her attention now, Jesus does. And she replies, When Messiah comes... He will tell us all things. And Jesus answered that, and he said, I who speak to you am he. So much for those who claim Jesus never said he was God. He just declared to this woman that he's God. He is Messiah. Now this woman goes on to believe. Her city believes. Not because of just her testimony, but because Jesus has declared to the whole city, their Sychar, that he is the Christ. This Samaritan woman, she was thirsty. And Jesus gave her living water to drink. Thirst is a basic physical need to sustain life. We must drink. When any person, or any animal for that matter, is thirsty, persuading them to drink is a non-issue. A man that is dying of thirst, you don't have to persuade him to drink. Let me tell you a little cattle story. I'm a cattleman. Got four cows. About two years ago when I bought my cows, two heifers and a steer, 
wanting to start my own little cattle ranch, I put these cows out in a pasture that I had prepared for them, and it has a stream that runs through it. So they got flowing good water to drink. But the previous owner of the cows told me that the cows that he had just sold me had never drank from a stream. And he says, you might want to put bottomless buckets out in the stream so your cows will know to go to the stream and drink. This sounded kind of clever to me. Uh, yeah, I can do that. So I cut the bottom out of a couple buckets, put them in the stream. Now, I'm telling this story to a friend of mine who is a cattleman. And needless to say, he got a big laugh out of that. Don, he told me, when those cows get thirsty, they will drink. Har, 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 har. He had a good laugh, Eleni. You don't have to try to fool a cow to drink water, Don. Har, 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 har. He had another good laugh. And Jesus puts a thirst in the hearts and lives of humanity for himself. And if we come to him, he will give us fountains of living water for us to drink. That's a promise. That's a promise of our Lord that he will satisfy our thirst. And by the way, my cows drink from the stream now. <laughs> but if you're here this morning and you're thirsty for the Lord, and you don't even have to know you're thirsty for the Lord because he has put that thirst there for us, for himself. I urge you, this morning, turn to the Lord, and he will satisfy your thirst. Let me get you to stand, and we'll close in prayer. First off, Lord, I want to thank you for putting a thirst, a desire in my heart for yourself. For, Lord, you've told us that in our depravity, in our sinful ways, none of us desire you. But yet, Lord, you, you create a thirst in us for yourself. Just like this woman at the well, she had no idea of her need for you until you spoke with her and brought this forward. So, Lord, we come to you and ask you, not only give us a thirst, Lord, satisfy that thirst with yourself. And, Lord, we would pray for those that we know of that do not know you. And we pray that you would put a thirst in their hearts and lives for the things of yourself, Lord Jesus. Create a thirst in their lives for you, their Savior. Lord, that is a work of the Spirit. That is how you draw us to yourself by putting a thirst in our lives. Lord, those of us who know you, we would pray that we would thirst after righteousness in our lives. 
that we would desire to please you with our lives, that we would be committed to you with our lives in a way that we've never known before. Help us to see the day we live in and help us to realize our need and our thirst that we have for you. Lord, you said you would satisfy that thirst. Now we ask you to give us that thirst, Lord. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.